You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. I read a, a funny story recently about a Baptist preacher and his children. And, you know, you guys know how children are. The, the kids had gone outside. They went outside to play. And in going outside to play, kids typically get to the point where that's boring. So they find something to fight over. <laughs> and so this guy was sitting in the house and he's just hearing all of these bickering and he's hearing all of this yelling and all of this screaming. And so he runs outside to discipline his children. And one of the older ones stands up and says, Dad, we're just playing church. How sad is it? How sad is it? And more often than not, the church gathered or scattered like the church that James is writing to. It's more characterized by our bickering and our division and all the things that disrupt our unity and community more than it is a place of safety and togetherness. The things that Barry brought to us last week, when you think about it, remember, ignore those chapter divisions. We're still talking about walking in wisdom and humility. And you look back and there were things described to us like bitterness, envy, jealousy, selfish ambition, and disorder. When we're not walking in wisdom, that's what life looks like. And how sad is it that the pastor's kids in this story that I'm telling would be outside playing church, arguing and fighting like cats and dogs. I want to read to us our text again. I know Jeff has already read it, but this is a, a good chunk of scripture, so... Let's read it together and then we'll pray and dive in. James chapter four and verse one says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We pray with me, Father, I ask here with everyone present that this word would be to us what you have designed for it to be. That which changes us, transforms us and calls us to what you call us to in humble submission to you. Lord, would you guard us from the things that we uh, unfortunately can laugh about because it is altogether true sometime? Purify your church, Lord. Unify your church. Help us. Even in this hour, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Well, James chapter four, one and two, what I want us to do is I want us to kind of march through it. We won't or verses one to 12. We won't be able to cover every single one of the verses because I feel like the word of God to us this morning is more so to emphasize some things and to get the whole message. Obviously, we always encourage you go back and read it and study it on your own. And we've even already put a reflection question and some reflection thoughts for you on the website. So as you go throughout the week, there's something to stir your heart toward the central truth and the message of uh, this passage. But what I want to do is I want to kind of just break it down for us a little bit and then get something practical and hopefully help us all to uh, see what James is driving at and then to give us some ammunition and some fuel for what it looks like for us to move forward. All right. So we've been talking about questions it's almost like James is just asking all these questions. <laughs> He's just asking questions over and over. It starts out with a question. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He starts out asking a question, not even uh, asking, hey, do you guys have any quarrels or fights there as you've been dispersed and you're in all these different house churches everywhere because you've had a pandemic to break out and there's been some persecution to you and there's all these things happening. Is there any fights happening in your homes? No, he didn't ask that. What he said is what causes all the quarrels and the fights? The ESV kind of flips it. It's really fights and quarrels. This, this idea that what causes all of the, the, the war that's going on and the battles within them, right? Why are you always fighting and then having these quarrels, uh, these disputes, these verbal disputes at the same time to characterize who you are as a church? There wasn't any evidence of a specific conflict that he's getting at. He's just talking about the totality, even the fact that he uses it in plural quarrels and fights. It leads us to believe that it wasn't an isolated event. It was what we all laughed at a minute ago. Sometimes we all talk about what it would be like to be with the first century church. They had the same problems we had. Oh, we need to get back to what it used to be like. It was so quarrelsome, if we're honest. There was a lot of fighting. Fights and wars. Strife. This idea that there's ongoing conflict and, and now it's characterizing community. He said, what causes that? Why are you uh, having all of these uh, circumstances where there's just disunity and disorder? What causes that? He asked the question, right? The two words that he used are actually very common terms 
for political and national unrest and struggle. The, the word actually for fight is polemos. If you go on Google right now or later and you type in polemos, everything will come up. P politics, politics, politics. In Florida, there's a business. It's called polemospolitics.org. You can go to that website. And what it basically says is, we will get your campaign to the point where we guarantee victory. And there's a helmet there of a gentleman who would have been like a Roman soldier. It's all about fighting in the context of, context of politics. And James came and he said, hey, what causes all of this political struggle and, and backbiting and fighting and strife against each other? Why are you guys always fighting? He's asking a question. This is one of those questions where it's like, man, it's already cutting to the heart. You don't even want to answer it. Well, he knew that. So what did he do? He answered it. And how did he answer it? With a rhetorical question. You saw it, right? Get back to James chapter uh, four, verse one. He said, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? He answers the question with a rhetorical question that implies the answer is absolutely it is. Yes, it is. Your passions. We don't always want to come and, uh, you know, give you a, a, a word that doesn't necessarily translate into English because we don't all speak that foreign language, but I think sometimes it's very important. So I want you to hear this. What passion is, is from hedane. And you know what that is? That's where we get our word in the English for hedonism. This is the root word for hedonism. He said that your passions are at war within you. And that's best understood in our context as hedonism cravings, strong desires to be satisfied. And more specifically, strong desires or cravings that I want to satisfy my own heart, my own self. It's most properly used, I would say, for sensual desires, even though it isn't limited to that. Sensual desires, right? So you could even say or, or, or uh, place in there lusts or lust is very related to it, if you would. When something is pleasing to our senses. Remember, he's answering the question with a rhetorical question. This is about what drives our appetites, the things that we want. What causes quarrels among you? It's the stuff that you want. It's the things that you allow to drive you. It's the cravings and the pleasures and the passions that are in your heart that drive you to saying, I want to be satisfied for myself and I don't care about what that means for someone else. Even in a general, uh, a general sense, it's more, you know, a satisfaction of a physical appetite that I have. So it's just, I, I mean, we know what cravings are. We talk about them all the time. At least, you know, I've got eight children at home. Jamie never had them. I weigh 75 pounds more than I used to, right? So every time she's pregnant, I got the cravings, right? And no matter what it was. I don't know if we was just hanging out late or what, but it's like, man, a Cinnabon would be great right now. It's 9.30 p.m. Is the mall still open, right? It's just easy to just, I want that to be satisfied. He says that literally, in a practical sense, those are the things 
that cause the quarrels, the fights that are among and between us. It's pleasure that has made an end in itself. I want to get this because it pleases me and I'll do that at all cost. As I think about this, I, I ask myself, and again, this is why we can't go through 12 verses, because I feel like verse number one is giving us everything almost already. I think about this and I think about even where we are right now. Some of the questions I have to ask myself about how I'll vote on propositions, who I'll vote for as a, pres as a presidential uh, uh, elect, and, and, and all those things. I ask myself, well, what is the reason why I vote for them? How will I respond if they don't win? Or if that doesn't pass, how will it make me feel if I decide uh, that, you know what, this is what I think is best for society and society says, no, it's the other way around. What's going to be my response to that? The warning from scripture is that if I'm not careful, the things that I want will begin to drive me and it will be all out fight and quarrel. Now, I know that I don't say a lot of polit political things here on Facebook, anywhere. I know that. You guys see me walking around with and shirts on because I think that it's about both and. I don't see it either or. I don't think that it should be something where we're divided over that. Christians are not called to be those who are partisan and we are against this person or against that way because we believe that and they believe that's not what it is. But I do want to say this. I know that this ain't falling on deaf ears because I know that your Facebook looks like my Facebook. Right. Have you have you shed tears or been grieved by the way in which your brothers and sisters in the faith have been backbiting against each other over political issues, things that they cannot control? What causes quarrels and fights among you is the fact that your heart is set on pleasing yourself. I heard it said recently someone was in a conversation about politics or whatnot, helped a person to say, you know, what? at the end of the day, it's all about this. On one side, you want to protect what you have. On the other side, you want to take what you don't have from somebody you think that has it. And that comes out of our text, too, when he talks about the fact that you covet and you can't get it. The warning from Scripture for us as believers is that, hey, this is the stuff that will disrupt everything that we strive for. And if we're not careful and if we're not uh, aware of that, and we find ourselves in a place where we're being ruled by it. This war language, I think, is very important to think about, like these things war inside of you. It's not just passions that you have inside, but they're at war inside of you. I want you to hear how Peter would have talked about that. I'm going to read from three chapters in first Peter, not the full three chapters. I know we only got a half hour here. All right. But just hear me out. First Peter, chapter one. This is what he says. He says, obedient as obedient. Oh, sorry. First Peter 1, 14. If you want to look it up later or turn with me. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He said there was a time when you didn't even know better and you were absolutely ruled by all the things that drive you to satisfy your appetite. But as people who are children now adopted into God's family, don't be ruled by those things anymore. Don't be led by them. Don't be conformed to them. First Peter chapter two, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You hear that war language? Peter saw that the passions of your flesh, the things that drive you to want to satisfy your desires and the cravings that you have as things that actually are at war against your soul. They want to take you captive, yes, but they also want to destroy you. And if we allow our passions and, and our cravings for, uh, for money, for comfort, for some type of uh, uh, a sexual pleasure or for some type of whatever it is, if we allow those things to rule us, will we not see that we le are led to destruction? Yes? No? That's why he says in chapter 4, Chapter four, verse three, this is still Peter speaking. You have wasted enough time doing what the unbelievers desire, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. You've wasted enough time with that. You've done that. You've been there and done that. Let it go because those things wage war against your soul. Those things will destroy you. Both of these brothers are talking to Christians. I'm speaking this morning to my brothers and sisters who have made a profession and faith in Christ as obedient children. Let those things go. These self-centered desires that want us to satisfy our own personal lusts. That's what our passions are. James says they're at war with us. Literally, they're warring all the time. There's always a constant battle. The truth of the matter is, is that when we're doing good, the battle's still being waged, right? We're, we're actually resisting. We're actually, uh, we're, we're holding back. We are, we're, we're not giving ourselves over to the things that our heart sometimes craves for and really longs for and wants. So it's never not a war. Do you believe that? Yeah. It's never not a war. We're always engaged and we all sh always should be, especially on the offensive. So James then gives us these four examples of how this has worked out. This is stuff you probably already know. We could go through it really slowly, but I think that anybody here from whatever age you are, you could study these things and you can see clearly what he's saying. Let's just read them together. So he's asked the question, what causes the quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The answer is yes, it is. And if we didn't believe that, verse two begins this way. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. I don't think he's talking about literal murder necessarily. I think that, again, this is James, the half brother of Jesus, who said, if you hate in your heart, you murder your brother. So if you desire something that can't have it and you hate that that other person has it, it's no better than murder. You desire, you can't obtain, so you murder, he says. Then he goes further and he says, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There's your reason. You covet it. You think that you should have it. You can't stand it. Somebody else has it. You really, really, really want to have it. And so it causes you to get into those wars and battles, the strife and struggle. Then he says this. This is interesting. Verse three, you ask and you do not receive or sorry, uh, back to verse two, before you get to three, you do not have because you do not ask. So if you remember back in James chapter one, let's say if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So just even on the wisdom tip, you don't have it, right? You should ask God, right? 
So now he's saying, hey, you don't have it because you don't ask. This kind of pictures that there are things that people are fighting for and they just laid down to pretending that it has anything to do with godliness. They'll basically just say, you know what? I, I, I'm, I can't pray about that. I know that what I'm asking for is wrong. So they don't even pray. They don't even ask. He says, you don't have it because you don't ask. And then for those who would say, well, I pray all the time. Oh, yeah, I, I really want God to give me this or give me that. What does he say? Verse number three, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So now it's no, it's not just that you don't ask, but maybe even when you do ask, you're still thinking about it in a self-centered way. You're still thinking about it in a manner that is more consistent with a person who cares about themselves over against anyone else. So here's what God is essentially saying. He's warning us. Okay. Here's the central truth to this text. The main point of it all. God is warning us that all of our conflicts and all of our arguments are rooted in our self-centered lusts, self-centered desires. The desires to satisfy our personal lust, no matter if it's power, politics, pleasure, prosperity. The conflict between us is because of the conflict within us. All of our external strife is a result of our internal battle. Laying down to the passions that don't care about you. And in fact, they want to destroy you. If you're like me, you can see that that's <laughs> okay, James. You, you, you're not playing this morning, right? But you might be asking that question of why, because we always ask that. Why is that so bad? Why is that so important? He anticipated that that would be the question. And so James answers our why. Here's how he answers our why. He gives us three rebukes. He gives us three rebukes to help us to answer the why. Here's the first one from verse number four. He says it's disloyal to God. In your scripture journals or if you have an ESV, it says you adulterous people. You adulterous people. You know what the literal feminine wording of that is you adulterous says and this is not talking about women over against men it's talking about what the bride of Christ God is the husband his people are what the bride of Christ and he says that we're adulteresses when we do that he rebukes unfaithfulness That's used of an unfaithful bride. You guys know that. Some time ago, Jamie and I and another group, we were doing a Bible study with a, a group and we we're walking through God is the Gospel by John Piper. And it was such a rich time in our lives. And one of the things that drew that, that, that was uh, that came out of the, uh, that with us and stuck with us. And it's so funny. I was talking to Barry briefly this week and the word came out and it's like, oh, man, I forgot I learned that word. It's an ancient word called a cuckold. Most of us don't know what that is. It's an English word. And it means something. And John Piper was driving at the fact that when God is not the good and when you're not more, when you're more concerned about the gifts that you receive. 
He's driving at the fact that when God's not the good that you receive in the gospel, and when you're more concerned about the gifts you might give than the giver who gives them to you, you turn God into a cuckold. He, he helped me to understand James chapter four that way. Here's what he said. This is kind of a way that he paraphrases this. I went and copied his words exactly. He says, it, it should be read, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world, this is a wife who's falling in love with another man, is enmity with your husband God. Hostility with him. He says it should go, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, which would be the side man, whoever wants to be faithful to or unfaithful to their true husband and be unfaithful and a friend of the side man makes himself an enemy of God. Why is it so wrong that we have all these quarrels and fights? Well, because the desires that we have inside make us disloyal to God. And so what are we doing? We're, we might even be praying for things that are decently OK. It's not wrong to pray for a new job if you need one, is it? Does it sound like that? That would be what what he's saying. It's not wrong to pray for a car if you need one. It's not wrong to pray for any of the provisions that you need if you need them. It's just wrong if you want it more than you want God and you're using God to get it. Does that make sense? God ain't a genie in a bottle. That's what's wrong. It's idolatry. And James pictures it as adultery. Look, worldly idolatry is spiritual adultery. Friendship with the world, uh, a, a wanting to use God for what you can get, and a going after worldly things is likened to a spiritual ador- adultery. It's no different than a human marriage. You're either a faithful bride or you're not. True or not true. So you're either a faithful part of the bride of Christ or you're in love with the world and unfaithful to him. Those are our options. And so he rebukes us and says, why is it such a big deal? It's such a big deal because it's disloyal to God. Because it's disloyal to God and who he is. He brings it out of the marriage relationship and he brings it down to friendship. We just read it a little bit, right? What does he say? He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or it could say hostility with God? You make him to be your enemy. Don't you know that friendship with the world means that you're actually hostile towards God? Don't you know that you can't do both? Don't you know that your devotion is to be to one and one alone? In a friendship, what do we do? We share values. We share time. We share secrets. I mean, we share life, right? And over time, what ends up happening? We become like the people we're with. This week, I got to have a conversation with my uh, children talking about that age old, right? First Corinthians 15, 33. Hey, bad company corrupts what? Good what? Good morals. That's a good Bible verse to memorize. Very short. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's true. You become like your friends. And so he literally said, if you're going to hang out with 
the world and go and do what the world does and you're going to go after everything that the world can give you and your, your whole desire and your whole life is after craving the satisfaction that what your political party can give you or what the, the, the prosperity that you think can earn you or the pleasures of your flesh is satisfying that. If you think that that's what it's going to get you, then guess what? You're hostile to God. You're not a friend of God. It's so interesting that not only do we become like our friends, but they also start to develop, right, an influence over our lives, too. Think about your friends, the, the, the closest people to you. If they say something, it's not just a small something. You give people power over your life when you befriend them and you're devoted to them and you move closer and closer to them. Friendship with the world, who are you actually following? You see why he says it's a big deal? And that's just step one. He says that it's disloyal. So it's so bad because it's flat out disloyal to God. Here's the second one. It disagrees with his word. If you look at verse number five, what did he say? Verse number five, he said, or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says? I'll stop right there. It could be better translated, I think, as do you suppose that it's for no reason that the scripture speaks? If you look at even uh, the way it's, this is kind of a hard text to translate. And if we had multiple translations here, it, it would read different. Here's the point. Do you think that the Bible in all that it says is meaningless? Do you think that God's word is pointless is what it's trying to get to you? There's not necessarily a scripture that says he yearns jealously over you. That, that's not in one Bible text, but I can show you multiple Bible texts that talks about God's jealousy and the fact that because we're created in his image and likeness, like we belong to him and he loves us. Truthfully, we don't talk about this a lot. I ask everybody, hey, what are your favorite attributes of God? People are going to use some big words. They're going to use small words like love and grace and mercy. We don't often talk about God's jealousy, but you know when jealousy is the right thing? When you come in at my wife. God's, God's jealous and yearns jealously over us. So to be like quarreling and fighting and driven by our passions and allowing those things, those cravings to go after everything else and divide us against each other. That, that doesn't even make sense. Again, it could say, do you think the scripture speaks in vain is the way that that's written there. This is just a testimony of the whole message of scripture that we cannot love God and the world. Is that new news to anybody? You cannot love God and the world systems that are against God. You cannot love God and love Satan. You cannot love God and love to satisfy your flesh and the things that God's, God hates. I mean, these, these things, we know they're polar opposites. They're diametrically opposed to each other. It's not even oil and water. It don't fit in the same vessel. It's just not the same. You can't do both. You cannot do both. Jesus said what? You can't love God in mercy. Why did he say that? Or God love, God love God in money. Why did he say that? Because you can't love it at the same time without it affecting your devotion. You're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. God told Israel multiple times. Read the book of Jeremiah, right? He told Israel, you can't love Egypt. <laughs> you can't love Babylon. He, he actually said, if, if you love and you're going to go back to Egypt, it's going to be a curse on you and there's no hope. 
that famine will come and be nothing but death. You can't go back into loving the system of worldliness that provided a prosperity for you because you don't want to suffer with God without that affecting your devotion to him. You see how practical it is? It disagrees with scripture to think that we can do both. And Jesus reiterated that when he said this. Luke 17, 32. Here's another short one to memorize. Remember Lot's wife. Can anybody understand what that's about? Lot's wife, she looked back. She didn't want to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. It's being destroyed. And as they're going out, Lot's wife is, by Jesus, an example to us of what it means to be looking back at the world and thinking, that's actually what satisfies what I want for my life. I know God has a, he loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, but that includes my this, that, and the third, right? Just, I mean, think about it. If you are more devoted to one, then it actually cancels out your devotion to the other. It's, it's worship language. I illustrated that for us probably a year ago, talking about the Matthew 6 passage when I just got down on the ground and said, one, is, one of them is about worship. You can't love God and bow down to him and love money. You're going to love one and hate the other. Why? Because when you bow down before something, you effectively turn your back on the other. I used to have a T-shirt that was a coin off of a hip hop song. Probably one of my favorite hip hop songs ever. It's called I Used to Love Her. It's amazing. It is amazing. Just the way in which hip hop is described and personified as a woman. And I, I think most people really know that song. Like if you've really been into hip hop. And so I used to have this T-shirt, which was great because it would walk around in urban areas. And it says, I used to love her. And it had a heart there and it was a broken heart. It was dripping blood. People would always ask me, what does that mean? I'm like, oh, 1J215. Let me read it to you. First John 2.15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. I, used, I got to share the gospel with so many people just because I had a T-shirt on it. They were like, man, where can I get that? I'm like, oh, it's not from Common and Most Deaf. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually about 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John actually described it a little bit more. In verse 16, he says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. There they go again, y'all. The passions, the desires of the flesh. And he said, the desires of the eyes. And he said, the pride of life. It's not just what you do out here. It's what's in here and what's in here. Those things that make you feel like more, that it pump you up. All those things, he said, are not from the Father. They're from the world, and the world is passing, passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen? Here's the third reason why it is doesn't make sense and he rebukes us because it seriously displeases him and you've already heard that we've already said it multiple times he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us he yearns jealously over the spirit he made to uh, uh, dwell within us as far as I can tell what we have is our little s spirit the breath of life that you have, the person that you have, the person that you are, that who God created you to be. God cares for you. He loves you and he wants you to be loyal to him and 
like I just illustrated with a marriage, that's not out of step. That doesn't make God wrong. I don't know if you know Oprah Winfrey's testimony, but I heard it again this week and it reminded me, oh yeah, Oprah Winfrey said she could never be a Christian because she was at a church in uh, New York and they said God is jealous. And she said, oh, I could never serve a God like that. She walked away. I think she got it wrong. She didn't understand what was actually being said. But here's the reality for us. That should be what causes us to remember, I belong to him. And, I, and, 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 and if I'm walking in wisdom, I'm not going to be a quarrelsome person, always fighting, divided, all in kinds of disorder, selfish, envious, et cetera, et cetera, right? Again, all connected to where we were even last week. Second Corinthians, I'll read it to you really quickly, verse uh, or chapter 11, verse two, for I'm jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. Paul says, he said, I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. But I fear that somehow your pure and your undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Paul longed for the Corinthians to be faithful to God as the bride of Christ. That's where we get that kind of language from. It's not just something you read into the Bible. It's there. Let me make it practical for us and land a plane. The way we make it practical is by kind of motoring through the last verses. Here's some application. If you want to heed the rebuke, if you've heard this message today and it is challenging you or warning you. See, warnings are always those good things, right? It's the sign that says, hey, don't go that way. Dead end down here. Dangerous, very steep, slow down, right? That, that's a warning. It's not always for a person who is actually doing something. It's a person who is at danger of damaging themselves if they keep going this way without exercising caution, right? So all of us, the reason why I say that is because all of us, even if you don't feel like you're in a quarrel or a fight, all of us should actually be warned by this passage and allow it to dictate what we do and how we do it. So here we go. Here's the first one. Submit to God in humility. If you want to be the person who heeds this and makes it practical and actually lives it out, submit to God in humility. It's in our text. Verse seven, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. He describes what submission to God looks like. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. God will draw near to you. Our humble submission to God is a very practical thing. You're the one who rules things. You're the one who made me. You love me. And so you called me to love you and love my neighbor as myself. And so it's not about me. It's not about my desires. If we're honest with ourselves, submission to God is easy to talk about and very hard to do, isn't it? That's the call for us. If we're going to submit to God, even when we think about this week, we're going to put aside the things that we may pride ourselves on. We're going to vote with a clear conscience in whatever direction we feel like that's where God wants us to be. But what we're not going to do is go there. And then when we don't get our way, allow that to disrupt our unity, and I'm speaking about the church because you know what? I could just about divide this, not because of the persons that are there, because of the number of you here and the number of conversations I had. And like, yeah, you guys don't vote the same. There's, there's some differences out there. 
You even got people like me. I'm not afraid to tell you that I'm going to write somebody in. So I'm in a whole nother category. And the thing is, is that if we go and we, uh, you know, half of the group won last week and the other half of the group didn't, what does that have to do with our indispensable partnership and membership together as a local church, the bride of Christ. I don't think it means that we're to be dismembered. I don't think it means that we're supposed to, uh, to, supposed to what? Gloat in each other's faces. And I also don't think that somebody needs to be so depressed and defeated because whatever happens in Washington doesn't change God who's on the throne, right? We know that. So let's just submit to God and be humble. Put aside our pride. Don't go after the things that we think we deserve or we have to have our rights. Submit all that to him. Yeah. I have some things written here. I'll just read them. The world and our flesh constantly tempt us with lies, telling us that there's more joy and there's more pleasure when we retain control and when we make decisions that cater to our desires and our pride. James is reminding us that submission is shown through obedience to God, and that's an intentional thing. It doesn't just happen. You actually say, oh yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna submit to God, and I'm gonna do that humbly. All right, I don't have to read the rest. The second thing practically for us is instead of wrestling with man in your passions, wrestle with God in your prayers. Yeah. Right there, you do not have because you do not ask. Hey y'all, let's just do that. Instead of getting all up in arms about somebody else and the way in which you think that they should do things or not, why don't you wrestle with God in prayer? Spend twice as much time, three times as much time. It wouldn't be bad if you spent 10 times as much time talking to God about your sister or brother as you do talking to your brother and sister about something that you think might be happening, not even in them, but maybe in another person. Don't wrestle with each other. He's warning us that all of our conflicts and all of our arguments are rooted in our self-centered desires to satisfy, satisfy our own personal what? Lust, passions, pleasures. First Peter chapter five. I'm in first Peter a lot today. This is actually what we alternate between we go James or first Peter. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter didn't only say that. He followed it up with humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know what? If things get you up in arms, you really can go to him. God really does care for you. And Peter said exactly what is here. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to know where that comes from? It comes from wisdom. You want to know why I say that? Because Barry taught us last week what the Proverbs are. It's in wisdom. And why do I mean that? Because Proverbs 3:34 says God gives grace to the, uh, the or he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. They're just quoting God's wisdom when they're calling us to it. God provides everything that we need, doesn't he? All right. Here's the, here's the next point. Check your heart. I think you can see that. Check your heart. When he talks about not praying and praying uh, wrongly to spend it on your passions, it just means that you can ask for a good thing the ba in a bad way. Okay? <laughs> you get that? You can ask for a good thing in a bad way. That's that person that I was talking about, conversation. Oh, I want my candidate to win because of this. And it seems like you're voting on an issue, but the truth is you're trying to protect your, 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 your taxes or you're trying to get more money from the person who has it or whatever it is, right? Examine your heart. Here's a way to examine your heart. 
Ask yourself this series of questions. Hey, what do I want? Why do I want that? Why is it important now? <laughs> how will it magnify Jesus in my life? How, how will it glorify God among the church? You ever ask yourself these x-ray questions to get to the heart of why you do things? That's what you have to get in the habit of doing. Who is this going to benefit the most is another good question. Who might this harm if I benefit? The last practical point for us comes from verses 11 and 12. Stop judging. Said another way, you're not the judge. Did y'all pick that up? We read this like twice or three times this morning, right? Don't speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Amen, Mike. Mike just said amen, and I picked it up. I want to make sure that the Zoom is working. Mike Doden just texted me and said amen. <laughs> Stop judging. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law. You become a judge, and there's only one of those. That makes total sense to us, right? Okay, I don't need to say too much about this. Here's how I'll conclude. I know that I missed a verse, and this should be the most comforting thing to all of us. You go back to verse six after he just talked to us about friendship with the world, about being adulteresses. It says, but he gives more grace. If this sounds like do and do and don't and don't, that's because the truth of the matter is this talking to people who've had their hearts transformed into the likeness of uh, or, 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 yeah, transformed to, to go toward and to surrender and to humble themselves and be subject to God and to do that with joy. But the truth of the matter is, is that we don't get it all right. Again, the reason why we started out laughing is because we've experienced all that quarreling and all of that fighting in the church. And so it is a very comforting thing that it says, but he gives more grace. It, it literally says grace on grace. Grace on top of grace, grace for the grace that you need on top of the grace that you needed last week and, and, and just more grace and grace and grace. You get grace. God gives grace. He gives it to a certain people, the ones who do the things that I just talked about, the ones who humble themselves. Right. Not the proud. He resists them. But those of us who humble ourselves and we say, I need you, God. He gives us more grace. I saw a picture once and it was the Niagara Falls and you had, you know, the Niagara Falls. You guys know what that looks like. And you know what the Niagara Falls is? Big waterfall. And the story goes that in this hall, there was a, a situation where the guy never named it. And so they put a name on all of their art in this hall. And so they just decided to put more to come over the picture of the Niagara Falls. And so now you see, right, hundreds of feet pouring water, millions of gallons, been going for thousands of years and it's going to keep on coming. And the best way to describe that is more to come. Grace on grace. You're fighting today. Grace on grace. But that grace transforms us. It doesn't allow us to stay where we are. Grace changes our hearts and causes us to submit to God in humility, right? You're quarreling today. Grace on grace. You covet something and you can't obtain it, so you hate your brother. There's grace for you, though. You can change today. You don't have to be who you are. You don't have to stay in, in, enslaved to those things. That's what he's calling us to. Does this make sense to us? 
This is what he's calling us to. He's saying there's grace for you to change. Even when you do wrong, I'm not condemning you for that. Jeff, you can come on. I'm not going to stop if you don't. God wants us to understand that there's grace for us to be transformed, for us to be changed. That you will make mistakes, that you have made mistakes, but that God is good and he loves us. He's a husband who's jealous over you as his bride. He's got covenant faithfulness to you. He's not going to just let you go. So don't let yourself go. Going after all kinds of cravings, going after all kinds of pleasures, trying to have all kinds of prosperity and all kinds of ease and all types of comfort. Commit yourself to God. And guess what? When you humbly submit to him, he will. He will provide everything that you need. He will solve all of the issues. He'll reconcile all of the brokenness. That's what he's calling us to. So why don't I just pray here and, and land the plane? I got my amen corner coming in. So we got toned up. Father, I thank you so much for the grace that you have for us. That even in a hard text for us to see that we have all these external conflicts between us because of the internal conflict within us. That even in that, we are overcome by the size of the cross. I don't have to get back up on the cross because you died for our past, present, and future sins. We say hallelujah and thank you, Jesus. But we also know that the true nature of grace is transforming us. That I am a mess, but grace transformed me. It changes me. Help us, Lord, to resist the devil. Thank you for the promise that if we do resist the devil, he will run away from us. He will flee from us. Help us, Lord, to draw near to you. Help us to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts, which just means do the do business with you with the things that are on the outside and clearly seen in our hands. But also those things that are in our hearts on the inside where nobody even knows. Help us, Lord, as we seek to cleanse ourselves. We don't want to be those who you keep calling double minded. We want to be devoted to you singularly. Help us, Lord. Help us even to turn our laughter to mourning, to be wretched and mourn and weep. There's a time for lamenting our lack of devotion and our unfaithfulness to you. God, would you help us as a community to put these things into practice? We humble ourselves before you, not even just so that we can be exalted, but because we know that you're a good God and you love us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus name. Amen.